Would we expect this from them if they watched a video of our lives and knew everything about us? He said the Rebbe, the Rebbe did not give cookie cutter advice. Did you ever hear him say that? Yes, I have heard him say that. The people who really don't like themselves are often not so great at uh, at loving others. You have to have some appreciation of yourself. Meet Joseph Telushkin, New York Times bestselling author of more than 15 books, including Jewish Literacy, which is the most widely sold book on Judaism of the last three decades. Which we discovered we both have on our coffee tables. And the popular book Rebbe, a fascinating and enlightening biography of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which completely sold out before going on sale, reaching the New York Times bestselling list and skyrocketing to the top of both Amazon and Barnes and Noble's bestselling lists. Talushkin was named by Talk Magazine as one of the 50 best speakers in the United States, and he continues to lecture around the world today. So welcome back to From the Inside Out. This is a good one. This episode, we're very excited to share this with you. And I, I hope this episode makes you begin to discover new possibilities about yourself and your life the way it did for Ida and I. It was a long conversation and we were going to split it and, you know, and release it in two separate episodes. But then we decided to keep it all here. You know, every so often you'll hear something, an idea, and suddenly you have this moment where you understand that this has a profound impact on you and it changes the way that you think. And there were several moments in this episode where I had that feeling. And I hope that you, our listener, will, that you'll have the same experience listening to this episode. I felt the same way in certain moments. I felt like there was this huge possibility for understanding ourselves and also understanding others. I also feel like it was a blessing to be able to interview someone like Joseph Telushkin. Yeah, this was a unique opportunity for us. And this is a unique opportunity to bring an episode to to you with, uh, with someone who I think can be a, a wonderful teacher and mentor. Maybe not in a direct way, but indirectly. We can learn, we can all learn from him and what he has to share. It kind of makes me see the world differently. Um, opens things up and I thought we'll go into this episode sharing this little a little paragraph to see a world in a world of sand and heaven in a wild flower hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour that's deep so tell us how you like how do you understand that why I'm sharing this here is because I felt like there is infinite possibility for a human being we're not really finite have infinity within us. Also, this episode took us time to to interview, to prepare the questions, to put together. And you're hearing it in a synopsis in, in an hour, but ultimately the time was all worthwhile. And this hour or hour and a bit, whatever it turns out to be, can become infinite for you in, in the growth in whatever you take from this. That's really beautiful. So it can help you realize the infinite possibilities that exist within your life. I love that. Now I understand it. At first, when you were reading it, it seemed so deep, like I had to reflect on it for a little bit. But whatever limitations you put on yourself, you, you impose on yourself, um, can be overcome. If you see the world as a place where you are an ambassador of infinity, I think this was a, this is something that uh, Rabbi Taub, Chase Taub, shared with us. We are ambassadors of infinity. We might seem small, but we can be the conduit you know, for something much greater. 
So that I think that this episode encapsulates what you just shared, that idea. Yeah, and there's nothing too big for infinity, and there is also nothing too small. So even taking one small thing from this episode that will lead to some action step um, ultimately is infinite. Right, if you can't envision yourself getting to that place, try to vision someone you love being in that space and how beautiful that is for them and then how beautiful it is for you to watch someone that you love and care about. And for parents, I'm sure you can relate to this, but you know, blossom and see this world as something infinite, you know, full of infinite possibilities. I think that maybe if you can envision somebody else that you love in that space, it's easier for you to enter into that space because we know that to truly love someone and nurture someone, we have to nurture ourselves first. And that's touched upon in this episode. So, yeah. so we'll say no, we'll say nothing further because, well, yeah. Well, without further ado, <laughs> enjoy. Hi, I'm Rifka. And I'm Ida. Welcome to the From the Inside Out podcast. We're entrepreneurs and friends who love connecting through meaningful conversations. It all started in an Uber where we were both so inspired by each other's life experiences. And it was then and there that we decided to create this platform because we believe in the power of growth, self-awareness and connection. Our goal is to bring you insights, research-backed tools, tips and shortcuts and interviews with some of our world's greatest thinkers, leaders and everyday heroes. We invite you to join us as we create positive change in mind, body, and soul. From the inside out. Hello, Joseph. It's an honor to have you on our podcast. Thank you. It was also an honor to have you in our home. I just met you recently in the last few yes. weeks. Thank and you. that led, led us to do this interview. Yes. And it was also such an honor to be a part of the discussion at our table with you and my father-in-law, Rabbi Krinsky, and to see what a special relationship you both have. I've known your I've known of your father-in-law since I was a kid. I was born in 1948. So in the 50s, my dad was at Chabad. And in those days it was an average, I think, of like once a week. And uh the name that I most remember was Yudel Krinsky. You know, he was always, you know, and then you're he was quite a young man. I suppose it was fitting that he was known by a nickname. I don't think most people today call him, you know, we call him that. But everything I've ever known about your father-in-law has been so striking to me. And my wife is sort of in awe of him. You know, he just, he, he emanates, uh, there's an aura. I mean, there, you know, and you know that it's just been developed by years of such uh, goodness, such goodness and holiness. Just How old were you when you first met your father-in-law? Oh, I was 18. I got married at 18 and that's when I met him. And I've, I've been in awe ever since. That, that was very apparent at the lunch. And right. I'd say Ezuhu Shieshlo Mazal, who has a daughter-in-law who's so in awe of him. Well, it's the truth. And the other thing is, is that he's always made me feel comfortable, like I can be myself because I feel that he just accepts me for who I am. And I don't take that for granted. Yes. Yes. It was lovely to meet your wife as well, where I discovered that she too is a very talented writer and we bonded at lunch. So for all these reasons, um, and Ida, we, we've both read your books and not all of them, there's too many, <laughs> but we feel, we feel connected through your writings and teachings. And so for all these reasons, we are delighted to have you here today. Yeah. 
Okay. So we did we did share in the introduction, um, you know, who you are, and it's hard to not be blown away and so impressed by what you've accomplished to date. And I feel like a lot of people, you know, see this figure, this public figure who um, they kind of put in a different category because we don't really see the path it takes to achieve what you've achieved. Um, not to say that anyone could do it, uh, but I'd love to know more about Well, first of all, is this the path that you envisioned for yourself? And can you also tell us about the path it took to get you to where you are today? Your words are extremely complimentary. And I just want to tell you, and maybe my goal here is to give hope to some parents who are worried about their kids. I went to a school called the Yeshiva of Flatbush. And I was in the Yeshiva of Flatbush High School. And my sophomore year, I met the person who became my best friend, Dennis Prager. We were in a class of 110 students. In those days, they used to rank people by grades. I was 83rd in the class, and Dennis was 92nd. So that oh, in and of itself doesn't prove how one's going to end up. Now, the reason was, and I do not say this with pride, what I'm going to say, the reason was we both tended to follow our own interests and to read what we wanted to read. And as a result, I got very low grades and I'm a big ignoramus in the sciences and in math. And I am by no means proud of that. But what we did both have going is we had real interests that we pursued very vigorously. Now in high school, I knew I wanted to be a writer. When you're 16 or 17 years old, and you want to be a writer, you're usually thinking in terms of fiction. You know, if you hear somebody said, oh, he was an important writer, you're usually thinking in terms of fiction. And in fact, in high school, I already did a lot of, uh, did some fictional stuff. What ended up happening was when Dennis and I were in our early 20s, we were very involved in doing work on behalf of Russian Jews. We wanted to help Russian Jews get out. And we started doing a lot of lecturing on it. And I remember once Dennis and I were talking and we sort of realized that we would speak before a variety of groups, obviously Orthodox groups, conservative reform, Hadassah, Jewish federations. And we realized at a certain point that a lot of the questions we got were fairly similar from Jews of different backgrounds. You have to believe in God to be a good Jew. If you have doubts about God, can you be a good Jew? Uh, Who needs Jewish law or organized religion? Isn't it enough to be an ethical person? If Judaism is supposed to make people better, how do you account for unethical, otherwise seemingly religious Jews? What is the Jewish role in the world? How does Judaism differ from other value systems, from Christianity, from humanism, no, from Marxism? Why are so many young Jews alienated? A question that was already then starting to become significant, why shouldn't I intermarry? And then we had a final thought about uh, how do one begin leading a more active Jewish life? And we self-published the book. We were too young. We were 25 when we were writing it. I think we were 26 when the book came out. And we self-published it. And it was very funny. Both of our fathers were accountants. So Dennis's father... Uh, handled the accounting work for the book. My father, who was a very, uh, had a lot of uh, like engineering sorts of skills, he would make up the packages and my mother uh, would bill. And what was funny, because sometimes I sent out the books and we would get complaints 
you have one person who packages things there perfectly and one person <laughs> books don't don't look so good. But anyway, but the book sold 33,000 copies, which wow. was unusual. And then a few years later, in 1981, Simon and Schuster acquired the book. A dear friend of mine, Michael Medved, brought it to the attention of a non-Jewish editor. And he knew that Jews were disproportionate buyers of books. And he, I remember then, uh, said to us, we're going to change the name from eight questions people ask about Judaism to the nine questions people ask about Judaism. Hmm. 1981, we were asked to add on a question. And I often tell, ask people if they could guess. You know, nobody does, but people are surprised when they hear what the question was we added on as early as 1981. Is there a difference between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism? And we oh. made the case why, for all practical purposes in today's world, there really is no difference. Uh, but I was lucky. You know, people think, oh, look how many books you've produced. But remember, I never held more than a half-time job anywhere so basically, and even that was not common. So basically, I've been able to devote my life to, uh, to writing. I earned my living largely also through lecturing I was giving. And uh, that's why, you know, so I've written an average of one book every two years, which doesn't sound quite as startling because most people who write, you know, have other things that they're doing. But I just felt that I had a talent. See, I knew. I knew by the age of 16 or 17 in high school that if I spent eight hours a day studying chemistry, the world of chemistry would not profit thereby, and I would be miserably unhappy. <laughs> I knew, I, I, I felt I had a good way to formulate. One thing I've known, you know, sometimes you'll read a book and you'll reread a paragraph and you'll reread a paragraph and you can't under, really understand it. One yes, thing I know that. I've always known is that if I understand something myself, yeah, I have an ability. I, I, I think I'm good at being able to explain it so another person can understand it. And if I can't do that, I realize that means I myself don't understand it. Right. And, you know, and, and in a sense, that's really uh, what happened. Dennis and I often marvel at the fact that at the age of 26, there are things we would change and we would write differently now about the book. Uh, in, in that book. And the book over the years sold well over 150,000 copies. But we also realized that in er at an early stage in life, we had come to an understanding of our Judaism, which is that we thought it had really original ideas. It had a system for really working on improving the world. I'll have occasion to say more about that later. And that we both found that we thought best when we wrote things. When I've spoken on things that I later, later wrote about, and in a speech, you can get away without the same level of precision. Uh, but when you have to put something down in writing, it has to meet a different standard. Right. I have so many thoughts on everything you just shared. I just want to firstly ask you what that was like writing a book with somebody else and then later on writing books on your own. Which process did you enjoy more? My wife, Devorah, who sort of learned her craft of writing, because for years she worked uh, as a translator, editor, and all-around assistant to the Yiddish writer, Isaac Vasheva Singer, who you know, actually was the only person writing in Yiddish who ever got a Nobel Prize in literature. 
Devorah always finds it remarkable that I can work on projects and write with other people. Most of my writing has been by myself. What happened with Dennis and I, once we edited down to the questions we wanted, one of us or the other would choose uh, to write the first draft of it. And then uh, the other would edit. And then we would, but we also had another interesting system that we did, which have either of you written books or articles? On a small scale, yes. Yes. Okay. One of the things that Dennis and I did, and Dennis has continued basically to do it on everything he's ever written. I have not always done it is we actually read the book aloud to each other. And it is amazing how many things the ear catches that you haven't caught, even if you reread the manuscript many times. And, you know, suddenly we'll catch inconsistencies or other things. So Dennis and I did that. So I would edit what he wrote, he would edit what I wrote, and then we would... Uh, read it aloud. And fortunately, we didn't have ego problems. We would change. If one insisted on one and the other, you had to convince the other person. Right. That's probably what it was. You let your, in order to work with someone else, you have to um, edge the ego out. No, that is true. You know, that is true. And uh, you have to be, and you have to have a real sense of, tr- of trust so that you can acknowledge Somebody will, con- you know, convince you of something. No, and it got to the point, you know, on occasion, I've quoted Dennis as having an original insight. He'll quote me as having had the original insight. And I specifically remember, no, it was the reverse because it really, and we did it for two books. We then did it for a book called Why the Jews, on in which we offered, I think, a fairly sweeping hypothesis on what anti-Semitism, what provokes anti-Semitism. Yeah, that was also really interesting what you shared, the, um, that anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism at the end of the day are similar. But that's, I guess that's a whole nother topic in itself. That is. Okay. <laughs> I'm not saying this is the only time we'll do a podcast. Yes. Um, on the subject of humility, being having the opportunity to write something with someone else and then you need to have some of that in order to do it. Ida and I really appreciate that we are able to work together. And when oh, right. We, yes. You're, you're yes. Too- so that's why that's why it intrigued me because I think there's something very special about finding someone that you can relate to and and work with. Uh, Rabbi Sachs had on our episode we had discussed that too. He was talking about the Beatles and other people that had done works together. Um, who was the economist that he was talking about, Ida? Oh, uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky. Oh, that's the, right. Yeah, these really. Yeah. Well, his point was that it's other people that help shape our lives, and to just recognize that it's a blessing and that when we have the opportunity to work with somebody else, they can really help us bring out our talents in a way where it wouldn't necessarily be brought out if we were doing that same thing alone. Yes. No, no, that's interesting. I'm asking you this question because not only because you wrote a book with Dennis Prager, two books, um, when I met you and your wife most recently, I was struck by the fact that you both are so knowledgeable and accomplished. And at the same time, you both display humility and a willingness to hear from other people. And so we want to hear what your take is on humility, because I found that very awe-inspiring. Thank you. One of my favorite thinkers, and a man, not just because I loved his books, but because he was such an extraordinary person, was the late uh, Rabbi Dr. Abraham Tversky. And 
Tversky, interestingly, ended up writing 90 books. You know, Tversky's medical expertise was uh, in helping recovering alcoholics. So he said, my addiction is writing. And here's something I take out from something Rabbi Tversky, who unfortunately actually died of COVID. I mean, he had lived a good life. He was 90. But listen to this. If we expect others to praise and honor us, would we expect this from them if they watched a video of our lives and knew everything about us? If we will be honest with ourselves, we will admit that the only way we can make a claim to other people's honor and praise is that they don't know the entire truth about us. And I think that's really true. Uh, you know, and it's always struck me. Listen, uh, we can have things that we regret. Have we ever done anything in any way that could be seen as dishonest? Have we ever given somebody bad advice because it would pro in some way to benefit ourselves? Did we, when, even when we were children, did we ever tease, uh, tease others? So that's one source of humility. Look, my, my single favorite Mishnah in the whole you know, uh, six volumes of the Mishnah is the first Mishnah in Perak Dalit of Pirkei Avos. Ezu chacham, hello, made me kol adam. When you realize, who is, I'm just translating because I know not everybody is necessarily yes. uh, fluent in Hebrew. Uh, who is wise, one who can learn from every person. And that's really also the hint of humility. What can you learn from every person? Everyone you meet, even one that you might feel more accomplished in many areas, probably has some area in which he or she is more accomplished than you. And, you know, and that really becomes the source of how you should uh, of how you should always think. You know, Tversky also makes the point, listen, any one of us could, God forbid, at any moment have a vessel break. And we then become not so smart at all or not so capable of of conveying things. So a lot depends on on the mazel of good health. Of all the bad traits people can have, I think the one that single most gets on my nerves is arrogance. I really appreciate that you mentioned Rabbi Tversky. Um, he had so much to share with the world on human behavior. I think specifically related to low self-esteem and how to overcome it and you know how to transform that into humility. And I know that he himself uh, suffered from low self-esteem for many years and was always working on himself. What? What Dr. Tversky once said to me, at that point, he had only written, I think, 60 books. And he said to me, he said, I've written 60 books, but they're all on the same subject, self-esteem. And, you know, and it's amazing. And he, and he could find no rational basis for it. He was the youngest in a family of five sons. He said he was doted on. His parents were always expressing great pride of, in him. And yet he remembered once he had done a workshop for like 100, I think it was like for 109 psychiatrists and uh, everybody who was present assessed it and 108 people really liked it. And one person was critical of it and he was tortured by that, right. by that one person. Yes. It's amazing how, you know, someone who, someone of his stature experienced those feelings, you know, it's hard to imagine. Have you ever heard that quote, humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less? Yes. It's, I don't remember who said it, because I am a great lover of quotes, and I always love to track down 
you know, interesting and unusual quotes. Actually, early on, published a book called Uncommon Sense, just the great quotes that I had uh, come across. And I agree with you. Oh, that is one. By the way, I want to say something, Ida, about self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And it's always very important to remember the Pasuk, you know, probably the most famous or some, one of the most famous Pesukim verses in the Torah is, of course, we have to lereacha kamocha. Love your neighbor as yourself. So there is an explicit command in there to love your neighbor. I just neighbor. want to show you I have your book, Love Your oh, Neighbor okay. As Yourself. So that's, oh, right. Yes, that's correct. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. So I always say there's an explicit command to love your neighbor, but there's an implicit command to love yourself. And people who really don't like themselves are often not so great at uh at loving others. You have to have some appreciation of yourself. There's a, a story, it might well be apocryphal, but some apocryphal stories are so good that they're worth repeating. Yeah. You know, the first book that the Chafetz Chaim uh, wrote was actually, the the title of the book was Chafetz Chaim, who is the person who, who loves life, or who uh, wishes life, you know, keep your tongue from speaking evil. So it was a book about the laws of Lashon HaRa, not to speak badly of others. Now, the Chavetz Chaim lived a very long life. Uh, I think he was born in 1838 and died in 1933. So he lived during the last period in history when it was possible to be famous without being widely recognized. Because photography was just starting to come out at that time. You know, if you grew up in the United States, we've all seen pictures, obviously, of Abraham Lincoln. But it wasn't so common. And also a lot of uh, Orthodox Jews even questioned whether uh, photographs were a good thing or shouldn't really be done. So the Chafetz Chaim, as a result, when he was going around lecturing on his book, Chafetz Chaim uh, was not widely recognized by people. So he was once on a train going into a town where he was going to give a speech. And he could see opposite him on the train was a fellow who obviously was also uh, a religious, an observant Jew. And they start talking and he asks the man where he's going. The man says, oh, I'm going to town. The Chafetz Chaim is speaking tonight. He's the greatest tzaddik. He's the greatest saintly figure and the greatest Talmud Chacham scholar in the world today. So the Chafetz Chaim was a little embarrassed at hearing himself described in such grandiose terms. So he said to the man, I know the Chafetz Chaim. He's not such a tzaddik. He's not such a scholar. The other man got so upset, he slaps the Chafetz Chaim in the face. That night, he shows up at the lecture. And when he realizes who's giving the lecture, you know, he's mortified beyond belief. So he goes over to the Chafetz Chaim after the lecture. He said, I had no idea it was you. I never would have done such a thing. I beg your forgiveness. The Chafetz Chaim says, what do I have to forgive you for? It was my honor you were defending. And he said, on the contrary, I learned an important lesson from you. You shouldn't speak lush and horror about yourself either. Right. And wow. so love your neighbor as yourself. You have to be able, you know, who really spoke about this. A man who I have a feeling had a lot of self-torture, Nachman of Bratzlov. You know, he said, even in those moments of greatest self-doubt, think of something you did that you know you did purely out of goodness of your heart. And starts bringing those things together. I feel like we underestimate the role of self-doubt in our lives. Like so many people who achieve greatness 
had self-doubt and talked about it. I mean, all the way back to Moshe Rabbeinu, right? Who didn't see himself as a leader. He didn't feel worthy of that role. And Rabbi Sachs mentioned the same thing. And, you know, here we just talked about Rabbi Tversky. So I feel like if we kind of accept that, hey, self-doubt is part of this process of figuring out who we are and trying different things, because, you know, we're not going to become great at anything if we don't first fail several times. And so that's, it's really, I feel like self-doubt should be seen as a, almost like a stepping stone. Like it's the obstacle that becomes the way once we can overcome it. And I think that can really make a huge difference, especially for young people who are afraid of trying new things or afraid to to step up and do something because they might fail. It's just, I think, important to, to, to remember that, hey, self-doubt is part of the process. Don't be afraid of it. And uh, so long as you utilize it, you know, in order to become better. And it is a stepping stone toward hum- humility if you allow it to be. I think this is a great segue into our next question to you. Loving others as we love ourselves is the way you expressed that and showed all of us how the Rebbe exemplified that to every single Jew. You wrote the New York Times bestselling book about the Rebbe, which we both read and loved. Um, You gave us a real feel for the Rebbe's humanness, which was extraordinary. And at the same time, it was very relatable where you, you feel like you can make a change within you, even though the Rebbe is in an undefinable league to us. And also it was relatable to life today. And you did write it how long ago? The book came out in 2014, but I had been working on it for five years. Right. All the books I've written, that was the one on which I spent the longest. I very naively started out thinking I could do it in two years. And it took me a year and three quarters to find my voice. Wow. Well, first of all, we want to know when you found your voice and also what inspired you to write this book? Well, let's start with that. What inspired you to write the book? Um, yeah, when- with Zalman Schmatkin, uh, the, uh, the head of uh, Chabad.org for many, many years. And Zalman, of course, knowing my family background, my father was the Rebbe's accountant. My grandfather, Harav Nissen, Shalom, had a very close relationship, uh, of course, with the Rebbe. And so he asked me, he said, I want write an article somewhere about the Rebbe and don't publish it in an Orthodox publication. Ideally, he would have been happy if, let's say, I could have gotten it into the something like the New York Times, which I couldn't. But I published it in the Forward, which is a fairly secular Jewish publication. And I don't know if they even normally would have taken it. But the editor, I said, this is, a, this is an article you really should publish. And they did. While working on the article, uh, it occurred to me that the Rebbe was the rarest form of leader. What do I mean by that? Obviously, the Rebbe had charisma. But most times when a charismatic leader dies, at best, the movement stays status quo where it is. And more commonly, there's a big decline. But here I was writing, at that time, it was only 12 years after the Rebbe's death, the movement at that point had already doubled in size in terms of Shulchim and clearly was on a very upward spiral. So that right away intrigued me because, as I said, that's the rarest form of leadership. And also I related there a story from my own family, which also impacted me because the Rebbe was dealing with macro issues. He was dealing with big issues, but he never lost sight 
of the individual. It wasn't always easy to get to a Yechidus to have a private meeting with the Rebbe, but if you had patience and you were willing to wait, you usually could. Later on, of course, in the dollars, people could see the Rebbe, but then it was very, very briefly. My father always had a guaranteed Yechidus once a year with the Rebbe around April 15th when taxes are due. <laughs> Uh, it was understood that, you know, he would bring the tax return in and the Rebbe would sign it. And then my father, you know, could pose any things he wanted to discuss, you know, and during the course of the year, because my father worked in the office uh, right outside the Rebbe's door. So he would, of course, uh, also, you know, periodically uh, see the Rebbe. In 1986, I was living in Eretz Yisrael and I got this sort of dreaded phone call Uh that my father had had a stroke and obviously I should come home immediately. I came home immediately. My dad was in a coma for about five days and twice a day, we would get a call from the Rebbe's office. Very often it was your father-in-law who was making the call that the Rebbe wanted to know how my father was doing. And then my father came out of the coma. I was very fortunate I was with him when he did and he was a little confused. My father had a very clear mind. You know, he used to give a Talmud cheer every Shabbat. And he was, a, he was a bit confused when he came out. And a few days after he came out of the coma, I remember I got a call from, from Rabbi Krinsky. He said, uh, a question came up. We had a meeting of the leadership of the Hanhullah today and an the question came up, and the Rebbe said, ask Shlomo, my father. And I said to him, Rabbi Krinsky, my father's still in ICU. He's still a little confused. He said, of course, the Rebbe, we mentioned that, of course, and the Rebbe remembered, but he still had this question. Now, one of the great regrets of my life is I didn't write down what the question was. <laughs> anyway, it was an accounting question, so I brought it into my father, and my father you know, looked at me for a second and gave a very clear answer. And I realized what the Rebbe had done. He did not ask my father a question that was so simple-minded that it wouldn't, you know, it would have been like insulting, you know, how much is two plus two? He also didn't want to ask a question that was so complicated that he, it would frustrate my father. He, he wanted to ask something my father could answer. Listen, with the Rebbe's intuition, he could figure out, you know, what, what it could be. That story so impacted me because I realized here he is, he's sitting at his desk in Brooklyn. He's dealing with such a myriad of issues, but he's also thinking about my father who's lying in a hospital bed, who, fe who feels that his life probably effectively in many ways was ending. It, it became clear he was not gonna be able to give a Talmud shear every week. And he was not gonna be able to do his accounting work and my father had very much imbibed. I only realized when I was working on the book that it was probably very much influenced by the Rebbe. My father had very much imbibed the ethic of never retiring. You know, my mother would have been happy for him to retire. And my father would say, what are we going to do? We'll sit in a hotel room and I'll stare at four walls. You know, so, but that also was very much a factor in why I wanted to write the book, because the combination of a charismatic leader who inspires people in a way 
that the Rebbe, I always said, the Rebbe commanded an army, you know, and and people, you know, when these people speak of there being like about 5,000 shluchim, I said, that's not true. There were 10,000 shluchim because there are a couple. In every other movement in Judaism, the spouse of a rabbi, obviously in the non-Orthodox movements, the spouse could be a man or a woman, but the uh, but in every other movement, it's only the rabbi who's expected to do it, and it's almost considered insulting if you, and what's your wife going to do? The Rebbe sent out couples, and they were both, you know, so this was, this was also that, who knows, that might have well been the Rebbe's single most important idea, uh, the dispatching of shluchim all over the world. My friend Dennis Prager defines the word remote as a town that doesn't have a Chabad institution in it. And, you know, so this was really so I thought, if I'm going to write, devote years to writing a book, so it has to be a book about somebody from whom you could learn so much. Were you inspired to change in any way, or did your perception of Chabad and the Rebbe change in any way? Yes, my perception did, did change. It deepened. I mean, I'll give you a sense of what I meant. I really came, I think, to properly appreciate how total the Rebbe's Avas Yisrael love of Jews was. One's always tempted to think when you're trying to be Makarev people, when you're trying to bring people you know, closer to Jewish observance, that some of your niceness and some of your goodness is you know, conditional on, on their changing. And the Rebbe's wasn't. The Rebbe really, really loved people as they were. And I was blown away by how clear that was. You know, I have an incident that I record in the book, which again, was a very unusual incident. The Rebbe called in, I'm forgetting who it was in the book. I think I mentioned the man's name. He called in so-and-so and he said, listen, I want you to give some money to a certain Jewish newspaper, which is in danger of going out of business. And the man said to the Rebbe, but that's not really an Orthodox newspaper. And the Rebbe said, I want it all done anonymously, but that newspaper does one good thing. It accurately prints every week on the front page what time candle lighting is. Yeah, I remember reading that. And he said, and people who don't get that newspaper might then not know what time candle lighting is. His his vision was so broad. And another thing uh, that also impacted me, so that, you know, was very, very moving to me. And another thing that also impacted was the Rebbe's extreme concern with the use of optimistic language. I remember the first person who pointed it out to me was my friend Simon Jacobson. And Simon just happened to mention in passing that the Rebbe didn't like the word Beit Cholim, which of course is the Hebrew term for hospital. Uh, And I've never heard any other expression used. The Rebbe wrote letters trying to convince places to stop using uh, the term Beit Cholim, he preferred Beit Refuah, House of Healing. And he'd say, first of all, that's more accurately defines what the place really is. It has to be uh, a house of healing. That's its goal. And he said, but the word Beit Cholim is a depressing word. Yeah. And there's a camp here in the United States, Hask, for children who have certain great disadvantages. And I was literally moved to tears when somebody came over to me from the camp and said, we read your book 
and we changed the name of the infirmary to the Beit HaRefuah. Wow. And, you know, and that positive usage of language. And I tell a story there. I was very medactic. I was very exacting. I did not want to use anonymous material because you never know how accurate it is, except except if there was a pressing reason. I mean, if it, if there was something in it that would really embarrass somebody and I had reason to believe the story was accurate. There was one story I could never trace to its source, but I used it uh, because too many people told it to me uh, that a man was speaking to the Rebbe and he was rather downbeat and at a certain, you know, and then he was unhappy. His son, who he had poured great efforts into, was turning out not to be such a, a religious Jew in the way he would have liked. And he sort of hit his ha- head against the side of his head. And he said, ah, you know what they say, it's hard to be a Jew. So the Rebbe looked at the man and said to him, I'm curious, do you often quote that uh, comment? The man said, Yes, a sister, it is hard to be a Jew. The Rebbe says, so then why are you so surprised that your son is not so enthusiastic about being a Jew? You could also say, es is good to sein a yid. It's good to be a Jew. And maybe that would change the whole atmosphere of, uh, of these things. My wife used to always say to me, when I'd come home, if I was in a good mood, she'd say you were at 770 today, right? <laughs> why do you say that? Uh, and I realized it's because Chabadniks tend to be the most optimistic people. And it's not cost for Sholem because they're insensitive, God forbid, in any way to tragedy. But they have, I am by nature not an envious person. I really don't envy anything. But I sometimes wish I had their level of Amuna. What what struck me in reading your book and having knowing having pers- some personal stories with the Rebbe, his father-in-law said that if he's up at 4 a.m., he either hadn't gone to sleep yet or he was, you know, awake for the day. Oh, which... he's just getting up, yes. Right, right. He was just getting up, right. Um, that was one of my favorite chapters. That one was, I'm also tired, so what? And the other chapter that I loved was, anything worth doing is worth doing now. Oh, good. What inspires me so much is knowing how how the Rebbe gave each person individualized advice and really knew what that person needed at that time. And thousands of people came to see him, yet he knew what to say to each person. When my mother left Russia, or the former Soviet Union, she in 1972, she went to the Rebbe for a bracha. Um, she wanted to go to university and study, and um, the Rebbe told her not to go. And then a couple of years later, uh, when she was married with, with kids, she went back to the Rebbe, and the Rebbe gave her a bracha to go to university and to study. So I found it so inspiring and so incredible that the Rebbe, you know, the same question, but asked twice, the Rebbe gave different advice each time. To the earlier point about the Rebbe having so much on his plate, um, I had a question about two separate stories that I saw about the Rebbe, one being that someone came to him and asked and said that they're overwhelmed with how much they have on their plate. And the Rebbe said, add something to your plate which seems counterintuitive. You would imagine that the Rebbe would say, okay, well, you know, just stop doing this and this, close a couple of tabs, and then you should be good. And then there's another story of someone who came and asked, they had a lot on their plate, and the Rebbe said, you know, you should know your limitations. You know, I'm not quoting it exactly as it was. Well, no, but, you know, right. Yeah, so know your limitations and kind of know what to take off your plate. So I'm just wondering what your position or what your what your stance is on this yeah, you have a chapter in there about it. So you've done you've done the research, and we know you you're somebody who 
accomplishes a lot. So we thought it would be. Tell me if you've ever heard your father-in-law use this expression, which he used with me several times. He said the the Rebbe did not give cookie cutter advice. Did you ever hear him say that? Yes. I have heard him say that. Yeah. Okay. And what he meant, of course, by that was a cookie cutter. Every cookie comes out the exact same. And the Rebbe would individualize his advice. I'm going to answer broadly, and I'll get to these points. But, Ida, while you were speaking, it, it, it triggered a memory of me. And I think this was going to, might have been a question you were going to ask in one way or another later. You know, people have a tendency to assume that authors write books in order. You know, they start, if they're going to write a biography, so when they sit down to write, they start with the person's birth, you know, it goes like that. Uh, I didn't. I would write each chapter when I felt that I had reached enough insights that I really knew what I wanted to say. And it took me, by the way, a year and three quarters uh, till I felt comfortable that I was writing. I was actually quite nervous. I remember there were points in that first year when I'd say to Devorah, my wife, I don't want this to just end up being a book of lovely anecdotes. You know, something has to draw the book together in each chapter. And so the first chapter I ended up writing in light of the comment you just made is uh, was called Why People Shouldn't Go to College and Why Those Who Are in College Shouldn't Drop Out. And I showed it to my agent and he was horrified. He said, Joseph, we can't publish a book with a big rabbi telling people they shouldn't go to college. I said, please read the chapter and you'll see what the Rebbe's reasoning was. And, you know, I think it tied in, in a sense, the Rebbe, part of the Rebbe's things was that people went to college at their most impressionable ages. And uh, he wanted people to have a more worked out philosophy of life, as I'm sure your mother did when she herself was already a mother. And he probably, by and large, was not ecstatic about people going also in the liberal arts, which tend to have a more relativistic view of things than in the hard sciences, let's say, for example. But the letter you were referring to was, of course, a famous letter that he wrote to Adin Steinzeltz. And Adin Steinzeltz was obviously one of the major intellectual figures of, of Jewish life, probably of all life. Uh, and Steinzeltz asked the Rebbe for priorities. He said, listen, I have one project I'm working on that is a full-time job. And then I have a second involving a series of schools that he had helped develop in Russia, and then a series of schools in Eretz Yisrael in Israel. So what should be my priority? And obviously his intention was the Rebbe would give him advice and he would cut back on certain things. And of course, the Rebbe's famous response to him was, continue everything you're doing and add a little to each. And Steinzeltz, in commenting on that letter, said the Rebbe wanted to change the essential nature of human beings to make them realize that they could achieve more than they thought they could. And the first person on whom he did this was himself. So that's, you know, that's what what he said to Steinzeltz. Now, on the other hand, because he knew people, you know, that comment that I made earlier, you know, that if I had devoted my life to chemistry, the world of chemistry would not have profited thereby. You have to have a, a recognition of people's strengths and limits. Right. I find in life that the most frustrating people 
to deal with are people who don't know themselves because you can't criticize them. They get very, very defensive uh, at any at any criticism. So the Rebbe wanted people to realize they could probably do better than what they were doing, but he also didn't want people to pursue goals that were going to be so unrealistic that an average person of fairly good capabilities, you know, come and told the Rebbe, yes, uh, my mission in life is I'm going to write a modern, <laughs> particularly appropriate since I'm speaking about uh, Steindolz and I'm also speaking to a Schottenstein, that somebody come and said to the Rebbe, yeah, my mission in life is I'm going to translate and write a commentary on the entire Talmud. You know, obviously the Rebbe would have discouraged that person. And in fact, of course, the English edition was done by many, many people. You, you want to give fair advice to a person so that they could do things that they could really take pride in. To encourage someone to do something that they can't possibly really succeed in doing is to is to cause misery to people. You uh, touched on something so important: self awareness. When we're intrinsically motivated, you know, by what we feel we're meant to do, it's a lot easier to know what needs to be filtered out and what we can take on. But when we're motivated by what we think other people want from us or by the outside world, then it gets a little harder to know what we need to do. And that maybe in that, in those cases, we just pile on more and more and more, and then we just become depleted. And then right. it's just not really helping. It's not, yeah, it's not building. Practically speaking, do you have any go, go-to tips on time management that maybe we feel would be good for ourselves, knowing ourselves? No, because I'm not great at managing my time. Oh. <laughs> you want to hear something funny? Uh, we had a shear at my shul from a woman who lives in Israel. Her first name is Gila. I'm forgetting her last name. And I just thought I was just going to listen. I, you know, I just wanted to, and she was great. I mean, she really, she was speaking about the Gemara in Menachos where Rabbi Akiva, where Moshe turns around and he goes to Rabbi Akiva's class and he can't understand things Rabbi Akiva's saying. But anyway, something she said reminded me of something, exactly of what Rabbi, she was talking about how life often ends up difficulty and unfairly. And it was exactly what uh, what Rabbi Sachs, that extract that you have. And so I quoted from that extract and she nodded along very rigorously. She said, you know, I edited 16 of Rabbi Sachs's books. And I spoke to her about Rabbi Sachs and you want to know her about time management. She said, you know, Rabbi Sachs suffered from writer's block. To which I said, Halavai, I get afflicted with such writer's block. I mean, she said, as a result, he used to secrete himself. He had a special room he went up to in his house and he closed the doors. And this I did know from when I had met him. Nobody could interrupt him. He had to be there the whole day. Wow. In the morning, he worked on one side of his desk, which faced the sun. And then later, he would work on the other uh, until he could get in, into the mood. As I said, I have been blessed that I didn't, or blessed or whatever, I didn't ever had a full-time job. So writing and going around giving lectures was what I did. So I had more time than most people. All I can say is if, but okay, it's just, I'll sound like a cliche thing. Uh, whatever is the most important things to you to do, do first. Because the worst feeling is at the end of the day, when you look back and you feel, oh, I didn't accomplish this, I didn't accomplish that. 
So do what you could at the end. You're inevitably at the end of the day, you're not going to accomplish, you know, whatever, all the things that you wanted. But just we often don't prioritize properly and do the most important thing. So to the extent that I can, when I'm writing something, I try and do a certain measure of writing. And as a rule, I try never, and this was an exception, I try <laughs> never uh, to schedule things before three in the afternoon. Oh, so this was an exception. <laughs> right. You said that at the end of the day, we don't, we most times don't get everything done that we mm-hmm. we want to. Um, on the subject of perfectionism, do you feel satisfied after completing books or any project? And if you do, how do you let go of the perfectionism? Okay, I'll tell you. I mentioned earlier that Dennis and I got into the habit of reading aloud our books to each other. Yeah. And at a certain point of either reading it aloud or rereading it and editing it for the 20th time, at a certain point, everything in the book started to seem trite, uninteresting, obvious. And that's exactly when we knew we had to hand the book into the editor. <laughs> and that, no, that's a real insight. I mean, you know, that's uh, it, because things started to sound uh, hackneyed. Look, there is, in one instance, somebody I, I didn't write enough about in the Rebbe book who deserved more recognition. And I did regret that. And I was able to get in a little more, but it was actually too late. Uh it was, I'll say who it was. It was Rabbi J.J. Hecht, who was a very, very major figure. And, you know, we make errors. But by and large, what, the thing with the Rebbe book was it's very unusual to write a biography of a person for whom there are thousands and thousands of people whose favorite activity is trading stories about this person. So I knew I couldn't make factual errors. People could argue with me about how I interpreted certain things about the Rebbe, but at least if I had a factual basis on which I had come to that conclusion, I could hold my own. I didn't want to be caught in errors. And fortunately, that by and large has not happened. And I tend to be pretty fanatical on trying to make sure I don't have factual errors. Uh, So for me, that, that's as close. I'm forgetting who it was. It was one of the great French writers, maybe it was Balzac, who said, a work of art is never completed. It's only abandoned. You know, at a certain point, you have to let go of the book. Alan Dershowitz makes that point that he said a lot in, in, in law. Alan Dershowitz is very prolific. He tends to come out with a book or more a year. And he said that there were some professors who early in their career wrote something extraordinary but then they never really publish much again. They're always working on something because they need it to be perfect. You know, and that puts me in mind because I know uh, one of my favorite quotes, probably, you know, from is the quote of Rabbi Tarfon, Lo Alecha Malachaligmor. It's not your obligation to complete the world. I always understood it in terms of Tikkun Olam, but perfecting the world. Uh, you're not allowed to leave tell me, man, but you, it doesn't free you from doing basically all that you can. So you have to make the book as good as you can. But if your book has something to offer people, it's better that it be brought out and make it as perfect as you can, but you're not going to achieve perfection. That's a great way to look at it. Thank you for sharing that. 
you know, you you said um, it took you how many years to write the book? Five five years, oh, and then that was the longest it. I worked on. Worked right, on and then other ones took you two years. And I was sharing with you at the lunch where we're, we're going to be interviewing Susan Kane, and she had said her book um, took her seven years to write. Um, and she said because she realized she had to be, you know, when she was writing, she had to come from a place of inspiration. Um, you know, you can't just write when you're not inspired. And you had said to me, you felt that you could, the real way to write is when you found your voice. When you found your voice, also to some extent, look, different things work for uh, different people. I, yeah. I like Susan Cain because we happen to have the same uh, literary agent. And then I found out her grandfather you know, was a very highly, highly regarded Orthodox rabbi in Borough Park, who I knew because my uncle Bernie had been president of his shul. It's amazing. Wow. Life, how, how these incredible, uh, you know, things uh, that tie together. Small world. My experience is when you're inspired, definitely write, because then often you'll write something and it'll work on the uh, first draft. But you can't always wait to be inspired. And therefore, if you set aside times to write, the inspiration will often come as you're writing. And, you know, that's what's important, you know, because, well, think about it. The Jewish, the general Jewish attitude, I would argue, goes in the other direction. I would not advise people to only pray when they're inspired. Right. It's a great point. Yeah. I mean, in the way the rabbis countered that, they actually put time limitations. But the mere fact that they ordained a tefillot on a daily basis meant that they felt if you do it on a daily basis, then you're more likely to start feeling inspired. So when did you find your voice? When was that? It was after about a year and three quarters, as I said, when I suddenly sat down and I started writing that chapter, I felt I had really integrated and understood what the Rebbe's problem the cha- was. The chapter on, on university. Yes. And, but I was also taken, you know, with a number of people, uh, you know, where he said to one person, he said, who wanted to get smicha, and he said, it's more important in your case that you have three letters after your name, PhD, than rabbi before your name. You'll be in a position to influence certain uh, people. Uh, you know, in different ways. Again, the non-cookie cutter approach. But how did that affect your your personal voice? So, so when I oh, so when I felt I finally understood, when I felt that I adequately understood the Rebbe's position on an issue, then I felt I could start setting it down. The last thing in the world I wanted to do was to write something about the Rebbe uh, that was a distortion. You know, which inevitably happens when people write books too quickly. That's why, as a general rule, I trust a good book even better than a good newspaper article because journalists have to reach conclusions very quickly. There are excellent journalists, but if they're going outside of their area of expertise, you know, and because I had spent, you know, so much time, Elkanah Schmatkin did me a great favor. Elkanah Heads Gem, you know, which is devoted to uh, compiling everything you can about the Rebbe and all the interviews. And uh, they transcribed these, and he gave me at one point about 10,000 single space pages of interviews. And, you know, very often, some I could see quickly were not going to be that interesting or, or, or that helpful to me, but some were unbelievable. 
And then I could call, and in most instances, happily, the people who had given these interviews were still alive. And, you know, and I could call them. And so I would get to a point where I felt really comfortable. And my book, in a sense, is really not a biography of the Rebbe's whole life. I have stuff about the Rebbe's whole life. It's really a biography of his years of leadership, because that's what I thought is what made him so spectacular. And, you know, and I didn't have the language skills to try and uncover what I could. Like, I'm sure, Ida, do you do you know Russian yourself? I speak a little Russian. Yeah. 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 OK, yeah. I don't have Russian. I have a Russian sounding last name, Tolushkin. So yeah. in Russia, when I went there, you know, they always assumed I would know Russian. But, you know, and my father and my grandfather, my grandfather had read Dostoevsky in Russian, but his grandson did not know Russian. I had to when I went to Russia carefully learn the alphabet because the word restaurant, which is the same in Russian from the American alphabet, looks like it's pektopa because the P <laughs> is an R, you know. And uh, so and my German, my Yiddish isn't isn't good. So my German isn't good. I, I, I knew enough French that I could pass orals in it. But uh, but I really what, what really interested me from the beginning was the Rebbe's years of leadership because he turned out to be such an extraordinary leader. And that's what I really wanted to, to write the biography of. What are your thoughts on the miracles attributed to the Rebbe? Yeah, you know, listen, it, it's interesting, you know, what one calls a miracle and what wasn't. And I'm very good friends and you're going to know the name because they're good friends with, with your father-in-law, with Bob and Diane Abrams. Yeah, that's who I was just thinking of. <laughs> right. Okay, so here, you know, Bob and Diane got married when they were a little on the later side for marriage. They were, I think, both uh, deep into their 30s, and they very quickly had uh, a daughter. And then years passed, and they did not have uh, another child. And Diane, who we're really quite friendly with, and Bob, quite friendly, you know, and the gynecologist told her that she was already hitting her late 40s. And we're talking about 30 years ago, when a lot of the advances that exist today didn't, uh, that her chances were very slim. And they went uh, to the Rebbe, I think it was on Oshana Rava, people being given pieces of cake. And they didn't even bother. They did not send in a note. They didn't ask about that. They had sort of given up. And the Rebbe gave them two pieces of cake, you know, and said to them, uh, this is for you and this is for the addition that will be coming in your family. And six weeks later, as Diane told me, she did one of those home pregnancy tests and tested uh, positive. And they certainly regard that as a bit of a miracle story. But OK, you know, actually, that's one of the photographs in the book. Yes. Abrams and standing, of course, right next to Rabbi Krinsky. Yes. So look, in your book, yes. The picture of her is in your book where you asked, where the Rebbe asked her for her opinion as a woman. Oh, that's right. Yes, yeah. that's also, yes. Now, look, I would be very happy if somebody would choose to do a whole book on miracles if they really, you know, really got validated stories and made sure. This again, you know, I remember when I interviewed Rabbi Groner, Allah Shalom. He said, he said, you have every right not to put in anonymous stories because, you know, he, and he quoted some uh, some mock or some source in the Talmud. Uh, I think it was in the Talmud. 
so, but if somebody was really willing to come and and do it, I think it would be fascinating. Yeah, and I guess there know, is there is already a book like the My Encounters with the Rebbe. Are in oh yes, now. okay, yeah. Yeah, of course, yes. In fact, two volumes of it. Look, I mean, they're doing Jam is doing amazing work. I mean, I I have such extraordinary uh, high regard, particularly you know the one I deal most with there, of course, is Elkanah Shmuelkin. Yeah. Uh, yeah, look, and as I said, and as you know from the luncheon we had, we spoke with your father-in-law, who also had an experience of the Rebbe that nobody else had, because he told us he had made 1,500 round trips with the Rebbe, where the Rebbe would stand before the grave of the Friedeka Rebbe, and re, you know, and, and he was obviously, there was communion, there was some yeah. sort of communication going on, and whatever can be revealed is... I think something would be a very extraordinary, extraordinary, extraordinary and unique contribution because so many other parts of the Rebbe's life have been already explored. Yeah. Okay, so you never know, you may be doing a part two. (laughs) Okay. I actually have a book I want to write, but I have a lot of things on my plate at the moment. (laughs) But it's a book that has never been written. And it's a book on philo-Semitism on non-Jews who really like Jews and really went out of their way to try and help Jews. Uh, There was a British writer who had a male name, but it was a woman writer, George Eliot, who wrote a book called Daniel Deronda. She wrote this, I think, in the 1870s or so, whose lead character is a Jewish character. And uh, she writes there of the need to reestablish a Jewish commonwealth. There should be a Jewish state. While she was working on the book, she herself was studying Hebrew and of the importance uh, that Hebrew be revived. You know, or I think I, uh, you know, there's a great story about Teddy Roosevelt, who was of course, you know, a well-known American president in the early 1900s. A few years before that, he had been the police commissioner of New York City. And the Germans in New York City, not the German Jews, you know, Germans uh, were bringing over Rector Alwalt, who was a, an anti-Semitic preacher from Germany, who was going to give a series of speeches. And the Jews in New York, by 1895, there was a fairly substantial Jewish community in New York. They went to Roosevelt, he was police commissioner, and they requested of him, don't give this guy speaking permits. And if he does give speeches, don't provide him with any police protection. So Roosevelt interestingly answered them. He said, I don't know if what you're requesting of me is legal, but even if it's legal, I don't think it's wise. You'll simply turn him into a martyr. Our goal should be to make him look ridiculous. And so he gave him speaking permits. He assigned 40 policemen to every speech this anti-Semite gave and all 40 policemen were New York Jewish policemen. So this guy was giving these speeches under the protection of New York City cops, which obviously did make him look a little ridiculous. So I really want to do a book on that whole subject of of philo-Semitism. Now that you've given us a little bit of an understanding of philo-Semitism, I was wondering if we could circle back to... My question about anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism and how they're the same. One, the only reason I was wondering is maybe there's just different perspectives because 
There are some religious Jews who would not consider anti-Semitism the same as anti-Zionism. Okay. Things change. I'll give you an example of what I mean. If you lived in the United States in 1770, when there was a growing movement in the United States uh, to rebel against the British and to establish a separate country here, you could oppose that movement without being considered an enemy of all Americans. There, There wasn't yet an American state. So you took the position we're better off being linked uh, to the British. Once there was an American country, if you aligned with those who wanted to overthrow the government, so things changed. Prior to the creation of Israel, anti-Zion, well, first of all, anti-Zionism was more, if you opposed there being a Jewish state and you had your reasons, you were not necessarily an anti-Semite. But if once a Jewish state exists, you support those who want to eliminate it, so you're supporting uh, another Holocaust. You know, you can't expect it. You know, in those few very extreme Nature Karta people, uh, I think, disqualified themselves when Ahmoud, whatever, I'm forgetting the name of that terrible uh, president in Iran, when he convened a conference in 2006 and some people from the Turek Karta showed up at a conference to deny the Holocaust because they thought uh, the Holocaust, you know, makes people more sympathetic to a Jewish state. You know, they really do become enemies of the Jewish people. Now, what I always said when people, my understanding of what the Rebbe did in Chabad was, Chabad historically was anti-Zionist because remember, it was a doctrine supporting the Zionism as a doctrine supported a secular Jewish state. Now, there was a movement within Zionism, the religious Zionists who were represented by Mizrahi, and they did want a religious state, but they also recognized that the state was not going to be founded based on the Torah. You know, it would be based on principles coming from Judaism, but it was not going to be that sort of a state. In fact, when Zalman Shazar, uh, Shlomo Zalman, when Shazar, who was later a president of Israel, and it was a very known fact that he had a close personal relationship with the Rebbe, uh, when he came to the United States in 1947 to help organize the vote on behalf of partition for Israel, he actually called up the Friedeke Rebbe, and it was, and the, the Friedeke Rebbe said to him, you'll see, the motion is going to pass for a Jewish state. And then when he went to speak with him, he went on Yutes Kislev, so it was after the vote already, that's when he spoke to him about establishing Kfar Chabad. And Shazar actually said to the Friedrich Rebbe, he said, what's going on here? Uh, he said, your father basically like banished me for becoming a Zionist because Shazar's father actually broke with him when he became a Zionist. And the Friedrich Rebbe simply answered him. He said, that was then, this is now. You know, he recognized, and certainly after the Holocaust, the need for a Jewish state and a, a Jewish refuge became important. So, you know, so I said, look, you could never expect Chabad as a movement to fully identify with Zionism, because how could Chabad as a movement fully identify with a movement that's committed to a Jewish state that it, by its nature is secular? But for all practical purposes, the Rebbe became the biggest 
you know, Zionist and supporter of Israel. By the way, I love stories where two people argue, but both of them make really valid points. And uh, Sharon, on one of his trips to the United States, when he met with the Rebbe, it was after the Six Day War, he appealed to the Rebbe to make Aliyah. He said, you are such an influential figure that if you make Aliyah, tens of thousands of your Hasidim are going to follow you. And you know our expression in Israel, in the Israeli army, the famous expression is acharai, you know, that the officers say, follow me, as opposed to officers who just send the troops ahead of them. And the Rebbe answered him, he says, you're right, that model of acharai is one model of leadership. Another model of leadership is the captain on a boat, who's supposed to be the last one who gets off the boat. And all of my shluchim know that they can never leave a community behind. Wow. So I love that story because both of them, you know, both of their arguments, it's not like one scores a point at the expense of the other. They're both uh, powerful arguments. Yeah. So that's why I'm saying. So technically, of course, Chabad's not a Zionist movement, but in its support for Israel, it does everything that we want uh, people to possibly do. And the Rebbe's particular love for the Chayalei Tzahal, for the soldiers of Israel, is one of the things I was so happy to document in my book. Yes, you I love did. that. I love that example. I feel like there's a lot of practical applications too, where where two people can argue and each have very valid points. Yeah, in a relationship. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. great. And that's okay. one point for the next generation. Um, there's a quote from your mother that uh, Dennis Prager includes in his book. Right. The only people I know who are happy are the ones are the people I don't know very well. That's correct. And we'd love for you to share your thoughts on this idea. Okay. My mother was a more sober person. I think my mother's life had been very much affected. She had been from a fairly affluent household and the depression sort of had wiped uh, my maternal grandfather out. And my mother was very sober. My father was by nature more optimistic. You know, we get different talents from uh, different parents. And thank God I got that from my father. He was very non-judgmental. My mother happened to have been funnier than my father. My mother was a very good speaker. And my sense of humor came uh, more from my mother. But I'll tell one funny thing that my father said, because he normally wasn't a joker. At some point in my life, when I was still quite young, I met a man who was a reconstructionist rabbi. And I was talking with him and he said, well, I'm still an observant Jew, but if an emergency comes up and I can't put on tefillin, so I don't go around feeling guilty. So I repeated this to my father and my father said, he's right. If an emergency comes up and you can't put on tefillin, don't feel guilty. But in my life, since my bar mitzvah, such an emergency has never come up. <laughs> you know, and you realize <laughs> that if you're expecting it in advance, some more emergencies will come up. Right. But my mother was more sober, and my mother said once, the only people I know who are happy are people I don't know well, by which she meant inside, inside every life, there are some real hardships. It so happens this past Shabbos, I had to be, a friend of mine was ill, and I was staying with him in a hotel on the, uh, on the east side because his wife had asked me and then Devorah came and stayed with me. I mean, we had separate rooms, but he needed real treatment. And interestingly enough, across the street, there was a, an Orthodox synagogue called the Edmund Safra Synagogue. 
So we dive in there. You know, Safra was a very, very well-known Jewish philanthropist. And three days later, just a couple of days ago, I saw the obit in the newspaper, his widow had died. You know, and we're talking about people who were billionaires, but in the course of it, it also came out that her son had died in a car crash in which her grandson had also died. You know, and, and, I, and I'm sure that there were people who knew about their wealth, who were envious, you know, of them. Because of my mother, I've never envied anybody because I realized that. No, I just realized you only know parts of the story uh, of other people. So my mother had a bunch of funny observations. On another occasion, I remember she said, when it's not terrible to be a Jew, it's wonderful. No, my mother really was, you know, really was witty. And, uh, and you know, William Henry Thoreau was a very significant 19th century American writer. And he was famous for a line, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And my mother said, and recently they're not so quiet. And, you know, so the ironies of, lo- of life were were not lost upon her. And she would, so anyway, that's simply what she meant. But I remember Dennis was once at our house and my mother made that comment. And he said to her, Helen, I'm going to make you famous uh, for that (laughs) comment. And I'll tell you a funny story that happened. Many years later, Devorah and I at one point in our lives had moved for two years to Boulder, Colorado. It was when our children were young enough, they were not yet ready for day school. And ultimately, we had to move back uh, for a variety of reasons. I had to come back to New York. But I remember while we were out there, uh, we met. Uh, Dennis was very friendly with a man named Jack Kemp. Jack Kemp was a, a congressman. And in 1996, he was the vice presidential candidate for the Republican Party. And uh, he and Dennis were close. And we really hit it off when we met. But when we met, Joanne Kemp, his wife said, isn't your mother that philosopher from Brooklyn that Dennis Prager likes to quote? <laughs> My mother's joy when I told her that, you know, was like beyond beyond belief. The thought that Joanne Kemp was thinking of her as this philosopher from Brooklyn. That's amazing. Uh, that's, yes, that's, but that's so really, that's of course what she meant. Well, okay. those, are, those are great quotes, especially the happiness one. I love that. It's so true. I know, so I know. True. From his book, Happiness is a Serious Problem. Yes. Yeah. Right. We wanted to ask you this question from your research on past generations and the generation today. What would you say we need to learn from our past? And is there a message you believe the next generation needs to hear? Yeah, I think the Jewish mission is no different than what it was in the past. You go back to God revealing himself to Avram, and we have to go out as a people to make God known to the world. I'll just tell you an interesting thing. My son, uh, Benjamin Ben-Sion, Aloha Shalom, wrote an essay once, and he was making the point, why was it so important that Joseph reconciled with his brothers? And he said, I think this is what the reason was. Avraham was told that he had a message, you know, to bring bracha, you know, we were going to be blessed in the world. But the truth is, Avraham had two sons, but only one of the two. Yitzchak was the one delegated to carry on the responsibility. Then in the next generation, Yitzchak has two sons, but only one, Yaakov, 
is the only one delegated. So we were in danger of not becoming a people, but of becoming a family. And he said that risk seemed to occur also in the case of Yaakov, because Yaakov's favoritism towards Joseph seemed so apparent that maybe he was thinking Joseph should carry it on. But you needed to have the people all reconciled and all united, because then from 12, from 12 sons and a daughter, you know, a whole people could really be formed. And I think the Jewish mission has to be what it always was, to teach that there is one God whose primary demand of humankind is ethical behavior, what's called ethical monotheism. And the Jews, in addition, have, of course, a whole bunch of specific, you know, between people and God mitzvot. You know, because, listen, people say to me, oh, Joseph, you put such emphasis always on the ethical. What about the ritual? I said, okay, let's look at the ritual for a moment. You know, for one thing, without ritual, we wouldn't have Kedusha. Anybody who's ever experienced a Shabbat knows that what gives it that sense of holiness is exactly the ritual. That's why, he, and the Rebbe so intuited that in his campaign to try and make sure that women lit, uh, lit Shabbat candles, you know, and I, I think it's in your family that were, that were every week they had that, that little notice, Jewish women and girls, candle lighting is at this time. And I'll tell you a funny story about that. Sitting next to me in my shul is a man named Ari Goldman. Ari was for 20 years uh, a journalist at the New York Times. He was the only journalist that the Times ever hired with the proviso he didn't have to work on Shabbat or on Jewish holidays. And he told me on January 1st, 2000, the Times issued three front pages. They issued the front page for January 1st, 2000. They reprinted the front page for January 1st, 1900. And they wrote an imaginary January 1st, 2100. And a lot of the articles, you know, were hard to understand. And should robots be allowed to vote in elections? And smack in the middle of the page, because January 1st, 2100 is a Friday, was Jewish women and girls. Candle lighting time will be at. I think that story explains something very important about Chabad. Why Chabad, unlike almost every other movement, has so many of its donations coming from people who really don't observe the way the movement observed. I'm sure if you look at the major donors to the Hebrew Union College Building Fund, they're going to be overwhelmingly reformed Jews. And I'm sure the same applies to JTS and the same applies to YU. I think there are many Jews who aren't necessarily that confident that their great-grandsons and great-granddaughters are going to be Jewish. But what they do know is that on January 1st, 2100, if the Mashiach has not yet come, there will be Chabadniks going around getting people to light Shabbat candles. And, and you know, that's why I think that, and it turns out, it, Ari told me it wasn't even a Jewish editor at the time. He said there was some Irish Catholic editor for that particular page, January 1st, 2100, you know, who I think called up Chabad and said, do you know what time candle lighting will be? You know, and of course they can compute it. Why do I say it's so important that Jews spread the message of ethical monotheism? It's not only because that's what God told us to do. 
It's because we will be the victims if we don't spread it. What was Nazi Germany if not a repudiation of the Jewish idea that there is one God who, and, and, a, and a universal morality, it was a total repudiation of it. They, they ridiculed it. Hitler ridiculed it. Hitler actually had uh, prepared, uh, instead of the, first of all, obviously he eliminated the Hebrew Bible, you know, from the Bible, but even the New Testament was going to be replaced by Mein Kampf in school rooms. We're going to be the ultimate victims of a world that rejects ethical monotheism. So it's not only the morally right thing to do, it's the intelligent thing. And that's really what Jews have to do. Now, the Rebbe picked up on that because I think it was in 83 that the Rebbe initiated the uh, Sheva Mitzvot campaign. You know, the seven laws, what they call the seven laws of the children of Noah. Jews are thought of as the children of Abraham and Noah is the rest of humankind and their basic ethical principles. You know, and some people said, why is the Rebbe making such a big issue out of it? After all, the pre-Rebbeim didn't. But of course, the pre-Rebbeim didn't. They were living in hostile anti-Semitic societies where they just hoped that Jews would be left alone. The thought that Jews were going to try and go out and influence uh, non-Jews as to their behavior, it was not going to happen. The Rebbe recognized that in America, Jews could have a real impact that there was an openness to Jews. The Pew studies show that Jews get a high level of respect in America. I remember when I was living in Israel in the 1980s, you know, there would be Israelis who would say to me, you American Jews, you're naive. You know, look what happened. Jews had equal rights in France. Look what happened. Jews had equal rights in Germany. And, uh, and you know, terrible things happened. And I said, it's true. Jews did have equal rights in those societies, but in those societies, Judaism had no status. In America, and there are a lot of non-Jews who have a lot of respect for Judaism, and we have to utilize that fact and make known what it is, because it's unfortunate. There are a lot of very secular Jews. You know, the Rebbe was pretty singular when the Supreme Court ruled I might be off in the year, I think it was 61 or 62, that you don't have any prayer in school. The Rebbe was unhappy about that. Obviously, he didn't want denominational prayers, but non-denominational prayers like they had in New York, he wanted because he said most Jewish kids in public schools don't pray. You know, maybe their parents will take them to shul on Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur. But they don't pray. He said, at least this way, there'll be a daily acknowledgement. Oh, my God. First of all, in the non-Orthodox world, there really was a big opposition to any prayer in schools. And basically, in the former world, they ignored the issue, probably in part because most people in that world, their kids weren't going to public schools. So it didn't touch them. The Rebbe always was thinking in that broader vision. and. Okay, yeah, there are plenty of Jewish kids who are in public schools, and this could be a good thing. And he also thought it would be good for the non-Jewish kids, too. When it became clear they weren't going to get prayer in schools, so then the Rebbe started backing a moment of silence. And he wanted the moment of silence to be at the beginning of the day, because otherwise he was concerned if it came in the middle of the day, kids would just think about, you know, the subject, the class that was coming up or the class that they had, had missed. 
one of the things I wanted to communicate in my book really was the Rebbe really did have a, 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 a love, a broader love than just the Jewish people. And the principle I think that's the most important is just always recognizing that people are B'Tselem Elohim. You know, they're in God's image. Now, there are people who, by their acts of evil, I think, can destroy the Tselem Elohim within themselves. But until they get to extreme acts of evil, you know, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I don't think that's exactly what's happening. But that's what the Rebbe, I think, really wanted uh wanted to appeal to and to bring out the best in people. Considering the state of our schools today, it's so important to be sharing this message that it's okay to learn math, history, science, and you know these subjects that offer up information and knowledge, but there's so much more that needs to be done um, with our children, with especially in the education system. Simply looking at history reminds us that not having a moral grounding in education can be catastrophic. Yeah, and he knew that because yeah. he had he, he had gone to school in Germany. He was in school in Germany almost until uh, Hitler came to power. Right. So he left Germany only a few months before the election, and he saw, you know, the level of support. The Rebbe understood something very important. People tend to always emphasize the importance of education, but the Rebbe understood the importance of moral education. Right. Right. Because a bad person will utilize his or her education to achieve bad ends. And the smarter they are, the more evil they can achieve. Yeah, and, and Nazi Germany is a great example of that. Yes, and right. Highly educated and, you know, unfortunately did not. <laughs> yes. Not yet, yeah. Okay, we are very excited about the next question. You have coined the term moral imagination, which we find intriguing. Can you share with us what moral imagination means to you and help us understand its application in our daily lives? So it's a book that I'm writing on. Devora told me that when she was working with Basheva Singer, he used to say a few things that are required to write a book is you have to feel that you have some expertise in this area and you have to feel that you're the that you are the person who should be writing this book. And I, you know, and I've had that obviously a few times uh, with things that the Rebbe book really consumed me. The last year of it, my wife was actually worrying about my health because I was going slightly mashuga, uh, trying to verify every detail. And Devorah was really helping me. I remember Devorah gave me some very good advice in particular. She was helping me throughout. She's a good editor. But she was helping me particularly on the chapter about the Rebbitson. And that was not an easy chapter to write because I remember a couple of the people I interviewed in Chabad you know, who were women says, how are you going to write a chapter on the Rebbitson? Nobody knows enough about the Rebbitson. But I was ever really able, because she really was a very private person, but I was able to piece together, uh, you know, and other things. But the book you I... You did a beautiful worked, job of that chapter. I actually found it so emotional. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I thank you. Anyway, so I have this concept of what I call moral imagination. Basically underlying it is the thesis that extraordinary advances have been made in the last century in medicine, science, technology, because people use the full resources of their intellectual imagination to solve problems that had previously been thought to be insoluble. 
but people often don't exercise the same utilization of their intellect to or their moral imagination to solve problems. You know, this is even alluded to, I, I think, in one of our uh, talks, Rivka, I think uh, I mentioned to you the Ramchal, you know, in, in the uh, Hakdama, in the preface to the Mesilas Yesharim, the Path of the Upright, he says people don't devote the same efforts to ethical issues because they tend to think that they're obvious, but they really aren't obvious. And so what I've been doing is trying to search out instances where people came up with innovative solutions to problems that seem to be insoluble. For example, one I learned from a woman, Shifra Penzias. Uh, Shifra Penzias is, uh, is a rabbi, I don't know, I think from the reform movement in California, but she comes from generations uh, of rabbis. And she had a great aunt in Germany whose name was Sussi. Uh, I, I had the last name, I don't have it here. In a family that didn't get out of Germany in time. So they were stuck in Germany. And obviously after Kristallnacht, every Jew knew that the future in Germany was gonna be terrible. So she escaped to Italy. Italy was under the fascist rule of Mussolini and Mussolini at that point had already signed an alliance uh, with, <clears throat> with Hitler. So if they caught you as a Jew in Italy, as a German Jew, they would send you back to Germany. So she's traveling on a train and uh, she doesn't have papers with her. And suddenly two fascist police get on the train and they're examining everybody's papers. And she knew that if they got to her, they would, she'd be arrested and deported back to Germany. And so tears understandably started to roll down her cheek. And the Italian man sitting next to her said, why are you crying? And she said, I don't have the papers you have. I'm Jewish. I'll be deported if they catch me. The man turns at her and starts exploding at her in anger. He says, you stupid. Okay, I'm not going to use the word he used, but you can imagine the sort of language. I can't stand being here with you. So the two fascist police run over and they say, what's going on here? And the man says, it's my wife. She always forgets her papers at home. I can't stand this anymore. And they left and just left her alone. Amazing story. She never knew the man's name. She knew nothing. Now, what's remarkable about that story is, I'm sure there were other people on, on the train who would have liked to help, but it's not enough to have the good intention. And the man had to have great courage. I, I don't want to underrate that. He could have gotten in deep trouble. But the moral imagination to think what could possibly work. You can't really demand that sort of heroism uh, from the average person. We can be inspired. So now I want to tell a story that falls more into the category, the story which might have I'm going to just tell you a few stories. We have a few minutes. Yes, we love stories. Okay, good. So I'm going to give you a few stories okay. of moral imagination. Uh, one is a story told about Yosef Halevi Soloveitchik, who is the great grandfather of the 20th century Rabbi Soloveitchik. He was known by the name of his sefer Beis Halevi because the Soloveitchiks were uh, of, of Levium of Levites. Anyway, the story is that uh, a few days before Pesach, he was sitting with some of his students, his Talmidim, and a man comes in who has a question. He said, Rabbi, can I use milk 
instead of wine at my Seder. So the rabbi says, is this a health issue? He said, no, I don't have money for wine. So he gives the man 25 rubles and he says, go and get everything you need for the Seder and, you know, and wishes him a Chag Sameach. When he leaves, a Talmud says to him, Rebbe, all that he would have needed for wine is four rubles. So he said, don't you understand? If he wanted to use milk, it means he had no money for meat. He probably has no money for anything. So sometimes you don't know, can't only listen to what the person asks for, but what do they really need? That story profoundly impacted me because about a week later, a woman who is a very good friend of Devorah and mine, a lovely, wonderful, wonderful woman, who was like a second grandmother to our, like an additional grandmother to our children, came over and we knew that she was a, a she was a poor woman. And uh, she was complaining of terrible back problems she was having. And she had told us before, but they were obviously escalating. And I remember I said to her, is there no medication that can help? She said, there is. But even with government assistance, it's $60. Later that evening, I gave her, you know, Devorah wanted me to do it. I gave her a check for $1,000. And it's all because of that story. If not for that story, of course, I would have given her the $60 and bought the medicine. But that story made me think, if this woman is in such pain and she doesn't have $60 for the medicine, who else, who, what else might she be depriving herself of? Right. And, you know, so that's, again, the moral imagination gets turned on uh you know, in, in, in a whole variety of ways. I'll give you a few other examples. I'm mentioning a person's name here because the family wants me to, is, is okay with using this story. There was a couple I had befriended when I lived in California named Spencer and Donna Gilbert. And Spencer was diagnosed with a very virulent cancer that, uh, he was probably going to be dead within a month. Obviously, they were trying any experimental treatments that they could. But I want to talk about moral imagination to, during the last weeks of one's life. He was a man, and her too. These were people I very deeply loved. And I was calling him, I was calling him uh, almost every day uh, during that time. Anyway, he, they had six children. And they had had a very loving marriage. And he spoke also individually to each of his six children. Their mother was then a woman who was in her 50s. And he said, you know how much your mother and I love each other. I want you to know, I don't want your mother to feel that she has to be without love for the rest of her life. If she meets somebody who's appropriate and who she loves, I want you to know I will be smiling down on you and I will be very happy. Now, we all know that there are instances where a parent dies and the other parent remarries and the children resent, you know, the new wife and, and they resent it. He, as Donna has told me, and she did, she eventually married, uh, married a, a Paul Van, a very wonderful man. And and she said it was a blessing. She said how that he was thinking about that while he was facing death. What could he do to help me in that regard? 
just was so moving to me. By the way, not all of the people I've learned uh, moral imagination from, obviously, are Jewish. So I was reading something. There's a. By the way, that that is just a beautiful story. Thank you for Isn't sharing. Isn't it? I know. No, you know what it is. I've known these stories, and I write about them, so I sometimes forget just how powerful they are. Yes, yes. And it, uh, listen, during those three weeks before he died, was my son Ben Sion's bar mitzvah, and I remember he said to me. I don't expect you and I don't want you to call on Friday. I don't want you to call Saturday night. I don't want you to call on Sunday. Just focus on your son's bar mitzvah. And this was a man. Yes, he was a very extraordinary person. Wow, that, that in itself is an, uh, an amazing yes. story. Yes, you're right. Yeah. Anyway, I, just, yeah. I, I, read, I, I, have, I read widely uh, and... And I love collecting stories. I fortunately have a good memory for stories and I have a good memory for jokes. One of my closest friends, Dennis Prager, has no memory for jokes. So I can always, every six months, tell him the same joke I've told him. And he really <laughs> but, we love uh, jokes too. <laughs> Didn't you write a book on jokes? Yes, I did. I wrote a book called uh, Jewish Humor. Basically, it's an analysis of Jewish life through about a hundred uh, different. We'll do it. We can do that on another occasion. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm Australian, so it takes me time to get the jokes. So let's yeah. Let's <laughs> <save it. Okay. laughs> Michael uh, Caine. Yeah. Is this another story in a moral, a moral imagination? Yes. Yeah. I'm only going to give you a few moral imagination okay. stories. Uh, so he became a very very prominent actor, and he said in his earlier years as an actor, he had a temper, and he would often fly off the handle. And as he was growing as a star, he still had a bad temper. And he once blew it, you know, blew up at somebody. And James Clavell, the writer wh whose book was being adapted into the movie, talked to him about how bad it was for him to lose his temper. And, you know, when you start to scream and shout, you look like a fool and you learn earn everybody's disrespect. And he writes about this and I'll tell you one conclusion he reached, which is so beautiful. He writes, never, ever, under any circumstance, shout at anybody who is lower on the ladder than you are. And to phrase it the way I phrase it is, never scream at anybody who can't scream back at you. To do so, as Cain puts it, is to take a monstrously unfair advantage. And there are people, you know, who do do, who, who do that. And people can, you know, get arrogant. And and so I consider that, you know, to be another instance of moral imagination. And I'll tell you another one. I was once spending a Shabbos with Dennis. Yeah, that's really good. That's a good lesson for parents and children. I agree with it. And by the way, strangely enough, I always told my children, if I start shouting at you, you can shout back, you know, because I shouldn't be I shouldn't be shouting. I mean, I'm not talking about if you shout at a kid when he's three years old and is about to run in, into the street. <laughs> But, you know, yes, no, I, I think it, and certainly when people yell at maids or, you know, or at waiters or in a teachers, hotel. Yeah, or teachers and students. Yeah, teachers and students, right. You, you, you know, all the laws in Rambam, uh, in, the, in his Hilchas Deus, in Rambam's laws really of character development makes it clear you cannot embarrass a, a child, a young child. Uh, yeah, people don't forget it. I mean, I once had occasion, I sit on the board of the Jewish Book Council, and at every meeting we would have an author who had a recent book would come and speak to the board. 
And one year it was Eric Kandel. Eric in 2000 won the Nobel Prize in uh, medicine and I forgot what the prize is called. Anyway, he had won it in that. And, uh, and somebody had to wait for him. So I said, look, let me wait for him. I have something in common with him. We both went to the yeshiva of Flatbush. Flatbush had produced two Nobel laureates. So I, so when he gets out of the elevator, uh, I said to him, oh, Dr. Kandel, you know, we exchanged pleasantries. We have something in common. We both went to Flatbush. And he immediately mentioned the name of a certain figure at the school. Uh, who was known for having a bad temper. He said, what did you think of so-and-so? And I said, well, it so happens he didn't, I was not a good student. He wasn't always so nice to me. He says, you too? I said, my family had fled from Vienna. I was there on scholarship and he didn't let me forget it. And at that moment, this 70 year old man who I come to really like, he's a wonderful person. In fact, I spoke at a dinner in his honor by the Chabad of Colombia. And believe me, when I was growing up, you did not associate the words Chabad and Columbia University together. But at that moment, this 70-year-old man was like that 10-year-old child who had been humiliated. People don't forget that. And it's, look, and we know that the rabbis compare it to Shrikha's Daman. They compare it uh, to bloodshed. And it's true. When somebody feels very humiliated, they can wish that they were dead. Anyway, so one Shabbos, I'm at Dennis's house, and visiting him is a man named Brad Anderson. Are you both familiar? You probably are familiar with the store chain Best Buy. Yeah. 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 He was he was a legendary figure at Best Buy. He was the one who really built it up, and it came out throughout the course of the afternoon that he's very, obviously a very deeply religious Christian. So I asked him. I said, "How did your Christianity affect how you did business?" And he had a surprising answer. You know, I assumed he was going to say, you know, the obvious things. I felt I had to be very honest. He said, he said it affected the most important decision I made when I took over Best Buy. He said, I put everybody only on salary. I raised salaries and eliminated commissions. He said, because I believe it's impossible to be fully honest when you're working on commissions. He said, if you know you're going to make a better commission on a certain product than another, it's hard to resist the temptation. If you know you're gonna make a better commission, if you get people to buy something for $5,000, but their needs could be really suited by 500, it's gonna be hard to do it. So I thought, again, that's moral imagination about that. Okay, I'll give, uh, okay, I'll just give, okay, I'll give one more example. My, I have a friend in, in, in Israel, Daniel Tao. Daniel, I've known for very many years because he had gone to a program. I had worked on the Brandeis Institute in California. Uh, he received a law degree in London, made Aliyah. He, he served for four years as Israel's ambassador to England. Uh, but here's something he once wrote to me. He was reading something I had written. He said, when picking a school for their child, most parents pay very close attention to the kindergarten and first grade classes and their teachers. They rarely pay attention to the behavior of the eighth grade graduating students. Hmm. That, however, will likely give them a better indication than kindergarten and first grade students of how their children will turn out at that school. And so that might even be more important than scrutinizing the kindergarten and first grade. It's just a different way of looking at things. Right. 
And so that's what I'm looking for. I have now probably about 100 examples. If anybody is listening to this podcast and can think of real instances of moral imagination, I would love to hear about them. Oh, wow. Yes. Thank you. Reminds me of how, you know, school in schools, we need to teach kids not what to think, but how to think. I think that moral imagination leads us down that path. Oh, good. Thank you. How to think. I think it's such an important idea, this using your imagination to find um, those morals in your own life. Yes. I also think that the stories are very important, especially to help kids understand what moral imagination is, because I was trying to define it just from my own perspective. You know, there's thinking outside the box, thinking creatively, being kind, but not just kind, you know, like think going like with name is which is essentially beyond what you believe might be expected of you. It's just, there's so many different things here at play. And I think it's such an important, it's, it's very, it's very thoughtful and it's, yeah, so I think important. It, it gets yeah, you. Great. I think it's all about giving, really. Like it gets you a, a, to a place of thinking of others and being more intuitive and and more thoughtful about other people. Um, no, know. it is, but it also invites. Yes, that's true. I mean, look, that's obviously going to be the basis. But you also just have to think in other ways, like that last point of Daniel Taub. Look mm-hmm. at how the graduating uh, kids react. Or that thought about of Brad Anderson about getting rid of uh, commissions. Mm-hmm. What I want to do really in my heart of hearts is make the study of ethics also exciting. Mm-hmm. Because ethics too often is just, oh, you got to be a nice person. Right. But I want to make it that people really can even argue about in a nice way, obviously, not in an insulting way. But people can even argue about what's going to work best, what's going to most help you know, how do you really fulfill the injunction? And in a given situation, what does mean? What does it mean to love your neighbor? Because, and it, it's not unrelated to the thing of Rabbi Krinsky about the Rebbe not being a cookie cutter type. He didn't yeah. give the same advice to everybody. He, you know, he tailored his advice, but that's again, a moral imagination or the yeah. advice that the Rebbe gave uh, to Dr. Ira Weiss, who was one of the Rebbe's very, very close physicians. And uh, his father, I believe, had had a stroke. He had not, uh, uh, if I remember correctly, he had not grown up, I read, uh, Dr. Weiss, in uh, a particularly religious sort of household. And his father was not, again, he gave me permission to mention these things. So, you know, his father, uh you know, it was not the sort of person who, whose, whose free hours were spent studying Talmud. So the Rebbe asked Dr. Weiss, his father, you know, then was, had gotten a stroke that left him paralyzed. And I don't know how much he could speak, but his life was obviously quite difficult. And the Rebbe asked Dr. Weiss, he said, so what do you do to give your father pleasure? He said, well, once a week we go out together to, you know, a nice kosher restaurant with my mother and him. He says, but what would give your father more sense of fun, of enjoyment? So Ira said, well, I'm a little embarrassed to say this to the Rebbe, but, you know, my father used to like to go to a club where he'd play cards, he would discuss the horse races, and the Rebbe said to him, so take him to that club and let him sit in. He'll watch as a poker game is being played. He'll hear people talking about things. 
Now, he never expected to get that advice from the Rebbe, and he said it had a very dramatic impact uh, that his father regained a certain pleasure in life. So again, that that thing, you had, so that's yeah, you again, had oral imagination has to be geared to the, towards that person. Yeah, you had written that in the book, actually, because you gave some examples with the Rebbe about moral imagination. Yeah, and yeah, that 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 is very thought-provoking in what we can do for somebody else that they actually enjoy. Yeah. And there was another story there that stood out to me that the Rebbe was listening to a chuppah going on outside in 770, and then he didn't hear any music afterwards mm-hmm. or dancing, and he asked, uh, I think it was Rabbi Grona, um, where's the music? And Rabbi Grona said they can't afford the music. And the Rebbe made sure he got money sent to them so that they could have music at the wedding without knowing it was from him. And I think that's also a great example of moral imagination. I think it's a a wonderful story. The only uh, thought that occurred to me is that couple probably would have had even greater excitement if they knew the money came from the Rebbe. (laughs) Well. (laughs) No, you're right. Look, the Rebbe yeah. acted in the proper way to act, obviously. I was reading your book on ethics, and it says there that the highest form of charity is giving anonymously. So I guess that's what... No, Rebbe I actually mean. didn't say that. Oh, that's I thought that's what you... No, <laughs> I thought no. In your book, Love Your Neighbor, it, you were talking about tzedakah, and one of the hi- the highest form of giving tzedakah is anonymously, correct? The only reason I think I didn't is because... that. I, because I know that that's very commonly assumed. Give me a minute. I'm going to look something up in my index. Okay. Because it was Abraham Tversky who convinced me that that's not the highest form of stalker. Oh, really? Maybe I just read that one. Too. Oh, no, you, you could have. It, I'm interested in knowing that, actually. Yeah, I'm interested in knowing yeah. that, too. Let it me is- tell you the story uh, that I heard from uh, Abraham Tversky. Okay. Tversky grew up in Milwaukee. And he he got smicha. He was ordained at a very young age, and he was an assistant to his dad. But at a certain point, he decided he really wanted to go to medical school because he was convinced that in the next generation, psychiatrists would come and play somewhat of the role that Rebbeim were playing. And people, because he had an unbelievable covered for his father, but anyway, he wanted to get a medical education. He Dafka wanted to go into psychiatry, and he, you know, he was already in his twenty, in his mid twenties, and you know, he came from the sort of background where he was already married and and had a couple of children. He later on had more children, and he went to the uh, I forget the name of it, the medical school that was in uh, in Milwaukee. He used up his money. His father gave him money. People from the congregation gave his father money. And he was finally at a point where in order to finish medical school, I mean, the sum I'm going to mention now was going to sound laughable, but this was in the 1950s. Uh, the sum of money he needed was $4,000, which today would be the equivalent of about 50000 Anyway, oh God, I wish I remembered the name of the school. It was a Catholic uh, school. And one of the people who sat on the board of that school was a very well-known actor at the time named Danny Thomas. So one day... Tversky calls up his his home and his wife says, by the way, they had a meeting of the uh, of the school and Danny Thomas announced, he said, tell the rabbi I'm sending in the four thousand dollars. And somebody on the school board leaked it, to, leaked it to a newspaper. And Danny Thomas at the time was really one of the most famous comedic actors in the United States. And it was printed. So a few days later, uh, Tversky reaches Danny Thomas on the phone to thank him. 
And Danny Thomas says, I want you to know I did this anonymously. I did not want any publicity. I'm very upset about it. Finally, a few years later, Torsky's in Los Angeles. So he actually sets up to go meet Danny Thomas. And when he meets Danny Thomas, Thomas again reiterates, you know, I'm still embarrassed that that thing got publicity. And Tversky had, Rabbi Tversky had such a brilliant answer. He said to him, Mr. Thomas, do you really, every day the newspapers are filled with news of terrible things people are doing to each other. Do you really think it's bad that there should be an article in the newspaper on how a Lebanese Catholic gave money to an Orthodox rabbi so that he could finish medical school? Obviously, he and Thomas went on to have a lifelong friendship, and Tversky later was in a position to raise money for the cause that mattered most to Thomas, he established a hospital called St. Jude. You know, in, in Catholicism, they have a lot of saint, saints, and St. Jude is the saint you're supposed to pray to when you have a bit of an impossible cause. And he set up the hospital. It specialized in treating kids with cancer, which, as you can imagine, in the 1960s, usually was a death sentence. And uh, so they became involved. So that story very much deeply impacted me, that anonymous giving is a very high level of giving. But if by giving with your name, you can do more good, then that becomes even better. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. So that was even, very insightful. Thank you so much. Even in Rambam's, uh, you know, eight uh, Madregot, eight uh, steps of charity, uh, anonymous is number two. The first one is, you know, giving loaning someone money so that they could go work or get into business loaning they, is more so that they aren't dependent. I remember I once heard a quote, I don't know if it was accurate, that Chaim Briska, they claimed, said of a certain man, he likes giving charity too much to be a truly charitable person. Now, in other words, he meant the guy liked the fact that people were dependent on him. You know, and so Maimonides, you know, is saying you want to get people out of the need for charity. Again, anybody wants to give charity anonymously, I still encourage you. But I'm just simply saying sometimes it's worth. Yeah, I think I think it's good to have both perspectives. Yeah. Okay. So when yeah. is this book coming out? No, I'm really in the middle uh, of uh, for a variety of personal reasons. My writing has slowed down. So God willing, the sooner the better. But now I'll see what it's, it still has a few years uh, away. So we have time to find stories for you. <laughs> we definitely do. Okay. Do, do you give out your emails on this? Because people, if okay, if you give it out, I'm a little afraid to give out my email because uh, I have enough email that I don't have. So, you know, <laughs> yes, if I only do. knew that the only people who would write me would be people telling me stories from oral imagination, <laughs> I'd gladly give it out. But okay, if you're open to people sending you things, please yeah, send them on. They can send them. And to I've me. got some. I, I've already. I had a lecture that I gave in Orange County. And a woman really sent me in uh, something her mother had taught her. And and it was a beautiful story. And I'm including it. Okay, everybody. So you can send it to Rivka and Ida at gmail.com. R-I-V-K-A-H and Ida, E-D-A at gmail.com. Excellent. Stories. Okay. To wrap okay. up, you said that you love quotes and we love quotes yeah. too. So we wanted to know if you can share with us a favorite quote of yours. Okay, I actually mentioned it, I, but my favorite quote, it's literally the last Mishnah in Perak Bet. It's the last Mishnah in the second chapter of Pirkei Avos, and it's attributed to Rabbi Tarfon. Lo alecha ha-melacha 
It is not your obligation to finish the work, Tikkun Olam, of mending the world, but you're not free or idle to do to be doing from all that you can. By us doing the best that we can, we may be that very person or our very action may be that very thing that's going to tip the scale to perfect the world. So thank you for making us feel that way within this episode and in your writings. And anyway, I want to thank the two of you. This is one of the great interviews that I've ever had in my life. And I really felt really had come up with really good questions and many of them not the sort of questions that I normally get asked. And it really gave me the idea to express the possibility of expressing a lot of what I do. So Todaraba, thank you. Wow. We are we're very humbled by what you just said and thank you so much. That means the world to us and we are so grateful to you for being here. Toda, thank you, you. You inspire us to keep going. Good. Okay. What can I say? Really, the hitro. The hitro.